This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. At Baxter, we understand that patients with acute kidney injury require therapy options different from those of patients with chronic kidney disease. That's why every piece of the PrismaFlex system has been designed with safety and flexibility in mind. From the highly accurate fluid management to the automated functionality to the ease in switching between CRRT therapies. For more information, visit us at www.renoacute.com. Hello and welcome to the iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ranjit Deshpande. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Rajat Basu, MD, on his recent talk at the SCCM Annual Congress. The talk was about treating volume overload in the ICU. Welcome, Dr. Basu. Thank you for having me. Before we start, do you have any disclosures to report? I have no relevant disclosures to report. So this was a very interesting talk, and I learned a lot from that. There were a big panel of guests on board, and um, you you spoke about how we can look at the phases of volume resuscitation or fluid resuscitation, de-resuscitation, which is a very important thing in intensive care medicine. You know, what would you say was one of the key factors in your talk that you would want our listeners to pay more attention to when they're dealing with patients? Yeah, I think that it's a really important question in terms of If you could pick one thing that potentially is the most important out of all the data that we get out of all the noise, what is the signal when we're talking about fluid? And essentially, I think people understand how important fluid is in terms of the cornerstone of our management and resuscitation. The problem is when we're talking about critically ill patients, if we're talking about respiratory distress or sepsis or kidney injury, there are a lot of uncontrollable things, but fluid delivery and fluid removal are constantly under our control. And we tend to treat them as an effect rather than something that we can affect. So part of my gist or part of the the impetus for the talk was to emphasize to the audience and to myself the idea that here's something in the midst of chaos that we actually have control over and we should be probably doing a better job than what we are doing. Basically, what you're trying to tell us is Fluid is more like a drug that you can give, not give, dose appropriately, and really affect your patient's care or management. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you probably put it better than I could in the sense that we think about it as a rite of passage coming into the hospital and, of of course, coming to the ICU that you need fluids. But IV fluids are drugs. We write for them. A nurse has to kind of measure them out and deliver them. Uh, Just like any other drug, you can underdose, you can overdose. We can measure quote-unquote levels of the drug. Uh, There are side effects. There's benefits to them, but there are side effects as well, and we should be thinking about them in that way. What's the downside of giving too much fluid? The data that we have, and we probably have more data now than we've had in the last 15, 20 years coming from all ages of patients, whether they be old patients in kind of in the geriatric phase of critical illness or in the adult phase of critical illness or children or neonates, tells us that there's a direct association with increasing net fluid balance and poor, poor patient outcome in the sense that the more fluid you've accumulated over time, the worse your outcomes are, independent of your severity of illness. So a great example would be you have two patients that come in simultaneously 
from the same motor vehicle accident. Uh, they both have some degree of musculoskeletal injury. They both have some pulmonary injury. They both are intubated. One patient gets a liberal fluid management strategy. The other one gets a conservative fluid management strategy. The one that gets the liberal fluid management strategy does worse. And, you know, in the sense of they are in the hospital longer, they have worsened mortality, they have increased rates of infection. Physiologically speaking, there's a lot of evidence, um, and you can trace this back to both on the micro level and the macro level, the effects of increasing hydrostatic pressure on end organ perfusion, on, on organ function. Uh, and, you know, our epidemiologic data tells us that outside of the resuscitative phase, we should be wondering how much fluid is, quote unquote, appropriate. Right, so I've been taught, you know, the 4-2-1 formula for maintenance IV fluids. I'm an anesthesiologist. And, you know, for years, you know, we've been telling our residents, hey, 4 one and then you replace for losses. When listening to your talk, there was a point where you mentioned that the 4 one formula for maintenance IV fluid might not be the appropriate way of replacing fluids. Is that something that you could elaborate on? I, yeah, I, I love this. I love this reflex that we are all using, that we all do, this 4-2-1 method. The Holiday-Sager kind of method that that is reflective of, the, the four mLs for the first 10 kilos and two for the next 10 and then one for each additional kilo weight, actually is a kind of shortcut cliff note version of what they initially had come up with in their canine model of resuscitation and fluid in the sense that they had come up with a body surface area-based estimation of total fluids where they estimated what the insensible fluid was and urine output over a period of hours, four and six hours. And what what they ended up finding was that in general, and this is kind of one of those convenience things, that the, the canines that weighed 10 kilos more or less fit into this realm of three and a half to four and a half. And then the like, as you went up, three and a half to four and a half mLs per kilo, but it was really initially based on body surface area. And so fast forward, what has happened is that that's what we use because it's simpler. It's easy. It's, it's calculable at the bedside. You don't need a lot of math. Most people should be able to do it without a calculator. And I get that. And it works for most people, but there, there are constraints that we don't think about. Insensible losses go down if you're on the ventilator. You don't need 421. The truth is you probably need 75% of 421. If you don't account for someone who's febrile, who's septic, who have higher insensible losses, or if you don't account for the change in urine output, you end up giving somebody too much fluid. So what do we do? At least in pediatrics, and I'm certain this is probably the case in some adult practices, we have patients that are ventilated for three, four days, and the family tells us, wow, they really look like they put on weight. And, they say, and the reflex is, well, that's what happens when you're ventilated because of sedation or whatever it is. The truth is it's probably because we're just giving too much fluid, and we don't need to do that. So my practice, generally speaking, is for patients who are not intubated, I will estimate their body surface area in metered squared and go 500 per metered squared and do their urine output on top of that and divide that over a period of 12 hours and extrapolate to 24. It's a little more work, but it ends up making their net fluid totals a little more balanced. And for patients who are intubated, I will take 350 per metered squared instead of 500. That's eye-opening for me. I've never thought about it this way. Great. So what do you use any sort of clinical monitors or any any technology to to help figure you figure out what's the volume status of the patient or you know where are we with our fluid management currently? 
So other, you know, raw numbers can lie to you, as you know. Um, anybody who's listening would, would attest to the idea that just because your ins and outs tell you something, it doesn't mean that that patient's actually that fluid overloaded or fluid underloaded. Um, one thing that is a constant struggle for us, a baseline quote-unquote marker that uh, is essentially impossible to get when you want it is a weight for the patient. So using a weight and as a trend of change in fluid is a very important thing. In terms of non-invasive markers, you know, there is a burgeoning use in pediatrics for point of care ultrasound for looking at pulmonary lung water or accumulated lung water. You can look at IBC filling and certainly non-invasive monitors in the adult world are probably more expansive than they were than they are in pediatrics. In terms of invasive monitoring, you know, looking at your waveforms and pulse pressure variation to see who is fluid responsive and who is not, to be more thoughtful about patients who have a nanosecond of hypotension in, in your reflexes to give volume, um, groundswell of biomarkers that are coming out that may give us some indication of fluid accumulation or patients that are potentially fluid responsive or diuretic responsive. And these are studies that are ongoing as we speak, some of the things that I'm working on as well. But I think ultimately what we need to be doing is thinking like intensivists and not as much static practitioners. We are bedside providers who are there multiple times in a day, multiple times in an hour sometimes. And what we use are changes in markers over time. A single static marker rarely tells us what we need to know, but a change in a marker, whether that be a lactate or base deficit or your SpO2 or your net fluid balance or your weight, that kinetic influence of the marker, that dynamic change is what we should be thinking about. And I tell you that as we start talking about that, if you look at the literature about the kind of change in fluid overload and the, the, the way we should be thinking about kind of phases of fluid therapy and the timing of accumulation, more and more people are starting to think about this. So you spoke about fluid accumulation. What about diuresis or restricting fluid? Is that better than giving too much fluid or does that hurt a patient in a, in a particular way? It really depends on the context. One of the things that I talk about when I'm on clinical service is that fluid removal should never be an emergency. Even though we have many lessons that we can teach in the ICU, I think one of the things that we should be focused on is being proactive and not reactive. And so if we're in a situation where we're emergently using diuretics for fluid removal, that's because we have not been proactive about thinking about our patient. Um, I think fluid restriction in the sense of well, what are these patients, what does this patient's fluid need or deficit or what are, what am I expecting? I think that makes sense in the sense that that's how, you know, this sense of, uh, you know, how you adjudicate insensible fluid loss or IV fluids, that's what we should be doing. We fluid restrict all the time if we concentrate TPN or if we try to merge drips, we do that. And I think what we're trying to do is essentially be thoughtful about how much fluid we're actually giving. Now, the use of renal replacement therapy is a great example. I don't believe at all that we should be in this paradigm where the criteria for initiation is fluid removal, even though that is what we use. I think what we should be working toward is the, the idea that the criteria for initiation is fluid control, prevention of accumulation. Because certainly in my practice and many people who I have worked with in the environments that I've been working in, what we are keen on is in the patient that has, let's say, kidney injury, is oliguric, who's sick, there's no foreseeable reversal of that. 
So initiation of renal replacement therapy becomes a control of fluid. There's no indication that you need to remove fluid right away, but you don't need fluid to accumulate on it. I think it's it's one of those an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure type of scenarios. If we're proactive and we're thoughtful about it, that's really important. And it goes into the concept of de-resuscitation. We are all great at throwing the kitchen sink at somebody. What we're not really great at is understanding when to take that kitchen sink off someone's face and how do you back away because we're worried about what will happen. But we we should be thoughtful about how we implement and remove therapies. In your talk, you know, this is great. In your talk, you also talk about using serum creatinine or correcting serum creatinine for fluid balance. How do you practice with that? Yeah, this is a concept that came out out of the adult fact trial. There was a post-talk analysis done where they actually incorporated the idea of net fluid balance on serum creatinine concentration, knowing that creatinine is a solute in liquid. The people who first described this had come up with a formula that's not that easy to do at the bedside in some ways. And we, uh, and I'm speaking personally, we've looked at this in the pediatric population and showed that if you use a fluid correction formula, you unmask a, a signal of AKI that wasn't there before. Do I use it at the bedside in practical terms? Well, it makes sense in pediatrics because pediatric patients have a lot more volatility. And when I say volatility, I mean lability in their serum creatinine concentrations, much more affected by volume. Muscle mass is much more discrepant. Your average six-year-old to the next six-year-old versus the average 16-year-old to the 60-year-old. So it's more of an impact for us. But what I would tell you is the way I use it in real time is to not trust the creatinine just because it's low or normal. It's the idea that here in this 15 kilogram patient, the serum creatinine probably should only be 0.3 or 0.4. But if it's 0.4 in this patient as shock and is six liters fluid overloaded, I shouldn't be trusting that the creatinine is quote unquote normal. It's probably being diluted. You know, I, I totally agree. You know, we don't use it. Like I don't routinely use it, but that's how I think about serum creatinine on my C rounds. Coming back to uh, the de-resuscitation component of, you know, flu- fluid therapy. How do you figure out, like you said, take the sick, uh, kitchen sink off someone's face or start de- de-resuscitating someone? What do you use in your daily practice? I'm in the process of working on uh, some analyses of some biomarkers and some other things that we can use that give us an estimation of stability. But sometimes it's time. You know, what I would tell you is I, I give myself a 12 to 24 hour time frame for stable resuscitation and stabilization, then a one to two day period for maintenance, making sure they're not changing. And then it is a leap of faith in some ways, but it is a deliberate leap of faith. I don't wait for the patient to necessarily show me something that says, well, I don't, I no longer need this therapy because the patients generally don't tell you that unless they shouldn't be in the ICU anyway, they should be on the floor. What I see is their hemodynamics have been stable for 20, 36 hours. They're, you know, whether they're on, let's say, renal replacement therapy or not, or getting diuretics or not, I'll see that they maintain some homeostasis, and then it's time. It's time to push them a little bit because I think there's a reticence um, to pushing patients to see what they can do. And this is probably, potentially maybe, I guess, a pediatric phenomenon. And, and, you know, in pediatrics, we are somewhat cautious or very cautious about, well, you know, let's be careful as we back down on this therapy 
because, quote unquote, they have less reserve. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I don't know that we respect the physiology the way it should be respected. So I think we're on the tip, really, just beginning to understand the concept of de-resuscitation. I think this is an area where we probably could make way more headway, I should say, in progress in making care better in the ICU than how we resuscitate someone. Because how we resuscitate someone, there are a lot of people working on that. There's been a lot of data, a lot of trials about that. But by comparison, a lot of the things we look at as metrics, length of stay, mechanical ventilation, duration, infection rates, those are related to the de-resuscitation phase, not the resuscitation phase. You know, the big question arises is, you know, so in, I work in mainly the surgical, surgical ICU. Uh, we have a lot of patients who come in, you know, with septic shock after, you know, gut procedures or whatever uh, surgeries they've had. And the big question comes is, should you start de-resuscitating or diuresing these patients on stable doses of vasopressors like norepi or, you know, whatever vasopressor you use in your institute? What's your take on that? I think it's okay. Um, I think this is one where, you know, the emergence of uh, biomarkers that are indicative of tubular function in the kidney and biomarkers that give you some marker, some element of what, how stable is uh, are the vasoplegia and, and the hemodynamic determinants in patients. If you have those things in place, um, you should push forward because in the event that let's say you are ha- you're on two vasopressors or va- two vasoactive agents and pick whatever you want and the patient has marginal hemodynamics they are potentially at an unfavorable portion of the starling curve if you gave them diuretics they're going to do one of two things they would either not respond in which case you haven't done anything or they would diurese significantly and in that situation you either have somebody who's going to have favorable hemodynamics or won't and if they don't you can give them back fluid. If they do, then you've proven to yourself something. So I think, you know, sometimes it is that that understanding of, okay, here's what I'm going to do, but I'm going to plan my my steps when the result happens. I'm going to plan out what the details are and what I'm going to do in response so they make sense to me. It's that whole hope versus strategy. Hope is not a strategy. You need to plan. Um, so you hope that someone does well, but you need to have a strategy for when they don't. And now, you know, when I talk about diuretics and de-resuscitation, automatically the other thought that comes to my mind is why not just give their kidney some rest and use renal replacement therapy to get some fluid off? Yeah, I think people probably have a better tolerance, if that's the right word, for CRT as, as use goes up. No longer are patients necessarily crashing and burning when they get initiated. Protocols have become more standardized and the machines are safer with more safe you know, safety checks and things. And it is just that. I mean, let's be honest, sepsis is the leading cause of AKI, let's say, in the developed nations. And until the patient shows signs that the sepsis is settling down and other end organs are getting better, the kidneys also are not going to get better. So CRT gives the body a chance to regulate fluids. It gives gives, gives you a chance to kind of control electrolytes and the kidneys will get better if they get better. The CRT is not going to make them worse and it's not going to make them better. It's independent. So Dr. Basu, if you were to choose a fluid for resuscitation or for maintenance, which, uh, which would be your favorite fluid or the fluid you would go to? The fluid that makes sense 
in the resuscitative phase for me at this point is lactated ringer solution. And, and the reason is, is because it's more balanced in terms of chloride and salt composition than normal saline and 5% albumin. It's not entirely balanced, but it is more balanced. And the data tells us that hyperchloremic solutions may be associated with worse outcome. But I also have a preference for blood or blood products when those, those fluids are appropriate. Again, it's context-driven. In terms of maintenance fluids, I think you really have to be thoughtful about who the patient is. And <clears throat> I do not believe that maintenance fluids uh, make sense if you're going to use hypotonic fluids, so really low sodium content. But it's certainly in the acute phase, I would, I would opt for balanced salt solutions and or blood products. And what about albumin? Well, I, I don't think 5% albumin is actually useful. <laughs> I think <laughs> if you want volume expansion, use something else. I think 5% albumin is a glorified way of giving lots of salt. Might as well eat, eat 52.5 for a liter of saline. Is that I would agree with that. I, <laughs> I, I, you sit down and eat two bags of jalapeno chips, which are delicious, but... <laughs> You know, you do that or you give your 50 kilo patient a liter of fluid at three in the morning, then you've really not done them a good thing unless they're having fun and eating jalapeno chips. Thank you, Dr. Basu, for being on our show today. And hopefully you'll enjoy your jalapeno bag of chips tonight. This concludes another edition of iCritical Care Podcast. Please check our website at www.seccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm your host, Dr. Ranjit Deshpande. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. At Baxter, we understand that patients with acute kidney injury require therapy options different from those of patients with chronic kidney disease. That's why every piece of the PrismaFlex system has been designed with safety and flexibility in mind. From the highly accurate fluid management to the automated functionality to the ease in switching between CRRT therapies. For more information, visit us at www.renoacute.com. Dr. Ranjit Despande. Dr. Ranjit Despande is an intensivist and an anesthesiologist at the Yale New Haven Hospital, YNHH. His interests include organ transplantation and point-of-care ultrasound. He currently is the director for transplant anesthesiology at YNHH. He is actively involved in resident education. Dr. Deshpande grew up in India and graduated from the BJ Medical College in Pune, India. He came to the United States to pursue a residency in anesthesiology at the University of Miami Jackson Hospital, after which he joined the Johns Hopkins University as a fellow in critical care medicine. His interests outside of medicine include spending time with his family, playing tennis, and squash. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare 
at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.